Hello, listeners. This week's episode contains many, many mentions of violence and sexual assault. So if that's not for you, please feel free to skip this episode. Thanks so much. Hey, I'm Sam. And I'm Lizzie. And we're queer people who love movies. This is Subtextual. Do I have your attention, everyone? You have my undivided attention. All right, so it is raining cats and little doggies outside, which kind of fits the mood for this film because it's depressing as shit and I will not be revisiting. (laughs) Spooky. Spooky. So, Sam, did you take the time to watch that really um, disturbing and long clip I sent you? I did. Yeah, you sent me a clip of like the last 20 minutes of this movie. And I've got to say, I had to look at my phone. It was just so uncomfortable for me at certain parts. But I'm with you. I I was there for the happenings. You're supposed to feel uncomfortable because I've been feeling uncomfortable with this story for weeks. It has severely affected me. Maybe the the cinematic like uh, importance is lost when you your link that you sent me is like one, two, three movies. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Don't tell the people I pirate. Yeah, no. I was not going to pay money for this movie. Like <laughs> that wasn't going to happen. I'm sorry. You're really selling it already. <laughs> to further sell it, this movie is a 2018 release, Lizzie. Um, its pros are Kristen Stewart's in it. Chloe Sevigny's in it. It's about a murdering female. Its cons are the entire plot, tone, <laughs> and source material are the most depressing things we'll ever talk about on the pod, I'm pretty sure. So are you ready? Yeah, I'm I'm ready. I mean, if we're if we're being candid, we tried to do this once before and it was not it. It was not it. I I I was not feeling it. And you know, honestly, I went back and took some time to do some further research into the subject in more historical context, and it did give me a deeper understanding of the film. So I'm glad that we're kind of taking a second dive into Lizzie, but yeah, this this movie's intense, and the fact that it's based on a true story just makes it even more intense and depressing. So, so wait, what do you know about Lizzie Borden, like, prior to me forcing you to watch this disturbing content? Yeah, uh, I didn't know very much about Lizzie Borden. I think I assumed she was that woman that bathed in blood. A common misconception. (laughs) Which I found out that person's name is also Elizabeth. So it's like not my fault totally. You know what I mean? You know, I just have to say thank God for Lizzie McGuire coming along and giving the name Lizzie like a better taste in people's mouths. Yeah. Like the Queen Elizabeths didn't have like a great time if I'm remembering, right? No. Mm -mm. Isn't the current queen's name Elizabeth? Yes, old girl, mm-hmm. Elizabeth. Uh, old girl, yeah. <laughs> Lizzie's have a hard knock life, I'll tell you that. And this Lizzie is no exception. So there was so much stuff to research about this. I was almost overwhelmed with the amount of source material surrounding mythic being that she has become. Like there is literally, I shit you not, like dozens and dozens and dozens of things derived from this film. There's a jillion podcasts just like ours, mostly true crime podcasts, which people have a hard on for, books, nonfiction and fiction, a TV series starring Christina Ricci, even a fucking rock opera ballet. Like, Jesus. For almost 200 years, we've been talking about this woman. So let's get in. Let's get in. You know, and also, I want to take the time to dedicate this episode to the women of the Victorian era because even the rich white ones had it hard. And God forbid you didn't have any money or you were born anything other than strict American because you had a fucking hard time and like fuck Victorian society straight up. All right. I'm sure the dead women of the Victorian era uh, really appreciate you shouting them out like this. (laughs) They needed it. Whether they recognize it or not, I think they needed modern women to look back and just be like, yo, I'm sorry you had to go through that. So I recognize the struggle of being a Victorian woman. (laughs) So I'm going to give you a couple facts about the actual Lizzie Borden before we start unraveling the film, Uh, because the film does a really good job of blending fact and fiction in a way that kind of brings the most exciting out of both. Okay, Lizzie Borden, a real person. She was born in Falls River, Massachusetts in 1860. 
in July 19th to be exact, which makes her a cancer, which makes her crazy in my opinion. <laughs> She's a Virgo rising with a Leo moon. Like I don't want to hear you say would- a bad thing about Virgos right now. I did not sign up for Virgo slander. I'm just here watching you like sitting in a dark red room drinking a Red Bull and I'm just like <laughs> fucking Virgos. Oh my God. I, I'm going to leave this Zoom meeting if you keep talking shit on Virgos. <laughs> <laughs> Recording ended. Attendant has left the meeting. Yes. Bye, okay. bitch. I'm going to send you a picture of Lizzie right the fuck now. You're making a face. Can you please tell me what you're feeling looking at this photo? I ooh, I do not like this photo. Oh no. She looks like she's actively a ghost, but I recognize that she's alive. Um her hair is not it. I mean, I'm sure it was nice for the time, but like I'm not loving it. If you took a messy bun and just like flattened it on her head and did like weird finger curls around the like top of her scalp, it's not cute. It's not cute. No, it's it's certainly not cute. And she almost looks like she's like stuffed into this dress, which I guess yes. is the style or something. Absolutely. And not to like profile her or anything, but she does look like she could kill me. She got crazy eyes. Does she not? Yeah, her eyes are both like unfeeling and also very intense at the same time. I hate this photo. It gives me anxiety. This is the last photo of her taken before the murder. So this is like two years before the murders took place. She's about 30 years old at this time. She's already a spinster, already like useless in the eyes of society. She's 30? Wow. I mean, she looks both old and young at the same time. Like I can't place her age whatsoever. Um, Okay, so Lizzie grew up in a very wealthy family. She was raised in a Christian household. She occasionally taught Sunday school, which was just about the only socializing that she had access to at this time, both because the like middle upper class where she stood in society didn't really have a lot to do, especially the women that weren't married. Like having a friend group kind of consisted of going to church and interacting with other like really uptight women like yourself and her being unmarried and also having a very domineering father kind of kept her out of society altogether. So she lived in a house with her older sister, Emma, who was about 10 years older than her, her father, Andrew, and her stepmother, Abby. Her biological mother died when she was two years old and her father remarried a woman named Abby after that. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of love or any really at all between the two girls and their stepmother. They never kind of built like the motherly daughter relationship I don't, I don't have any, like, evidence or saw any evidence that she was a bad stepmom, like a wicked stepmom or anything like that. They just never connected. And there also didn't seem to be a whole lot of love between the girls and their father either. Uh, what's her sister's name? Emma. Emma. Emma, Abby, and... Andrew. Andrew. Okay. Yeah. Andrew's the father. And also, I want to give you just, like, a little bit of the context, the real-life context of the world that... Lizzie was living in at the time. Lizzie grew up in Massachusetts in the late 1800s, which this is not very long after the end of the Civil War. So America is going through some crazy changes. And one of the biggest changes we're seeing is that there's more wealth being infused into the general population. And of course, I'm saying general population, white people. White people have a lot more opportunities at this time. Like the war brought a lot of um, industrialization and new technology, like like electricity in homes would have been a fairly common thing at this time, as well as plumbing, which are two things that were not present in the Lizzie Borden household. Like her father refused to pay for electricity and plumbing, even though anyone at their class level at this time would have had a toilet and fucking light switches. So they were shitting outside? Hold up. Where? Yes. What? Shitting outside and like pumping water in a city. It makes no sense. Who was pumping water? With their arms? All of them. And the maid, yeah. With their arms? (laughs) I don't like that. No, I would not be doing that. I would die. I would simply pass away. (laughs) You'd be like, well, it's been real. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, wealth was being kind of infused into the middle class. The middle class was growing at this time. And the city where Lizzie lived, Falls River, is kind of a really good visual representation of a pretty typical American town. Um, so Falls River, imagine like a hill and then like progressively sloping land going down towards a river. Okay. Okay. Down at the bottom of the river, 
is where all the mills are located. These mills are where a lot of the wealth of this particular town came from. And the working class lived near the mills because that's where they worked. So the area near the water was more densely populated, pretty dirty and grungy. There's always carts going up and down the road. So there's just like dirt and horse poop everywhere. And then as you get higher up onto the hill, which is the name of the fashionable area of town and also incidentally the top of the hill, you get more and more wealthy people um, who probably did more trades in like real estate and who might have owned the mills, that kind of thing. And where Lizzie Borden and her family lived was actually like in the midst of the commotion at the bottom of the hill. Anyone of their socioeconomic status, which her dad's fortune was at today's money, he was a millionaire, but they still lived kind of like they lived one block from Main Street, which would have been like the busiest, dirtiest part of town. So there was a lot of contention in the family because Lizzie and her sister wanted to live on top of the hill, but their dad was too much of a cheapskate to move them there, even though they could easily afford it. And they didn't even have a toilet. I just don't see the benefit of living with your rich parents at this point. If you're like pumping your own shit, I'd be out of there. Nah. Right. And he did give them an allowance, but it was equal to $100 a week, which like, you know, is nothing to sneeze at. But, like, he was a super penny pincher, and that level of control, I think, definitely extended to other parts of their lives, not just their finances. I think he didn't really allow the girls to do too many things. Like, neither one of them seemed to really have too much of a booming social life, even though they could afford to have one. And I think it's his fault. I think he, like, controlled them, locked them in the house, didn't encourage them to go out, didn't encourage them to get an education because women's colleges were becoming um, more of a thing at this time. And... Yeah, just not fun. They did not have fun at all. I've got to say, I'm not loving this, this scene you're painting me, Lizzie. <laughs> well, then you should hear what the women had to wear on a daily basis. I'm sending you another picture. Oh, God, I hope it's better than this last one because this devil woman has just been staring at me. Ah, oh. <laughs> come on. Oh, no. Ah, <laughs> oh, goddamn. I need you to describe some of the fashion that you're seeing. They're four, like, meerkat-looking women, and they've got these, like, little curls that are so creepy. Two of them are, like, frowning. I guess two of them are almost smiling, and they look dead. I feel like they're dead. Well, I know they're dead because, you know, history and time, but, like, I feel like they're dead when this photo was taken. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Emotionally dead. Yeah. Um, I'm clicking away from this now. I've seen enough. Okay. That's fine. Yeah, their dresses are just so tight. Like, anything from the waist up is cinched and tucked and corseted. Like, they wore corsets on a daily basis. And, you know, I'm all about a Violet Chachki moment, and I think corsets have really come back into the setting of fashion in the last few years. Like, and I love to see a man or woman cinched, but could you imagine wearing a corset every fucking day? This is, like, the least flattering corsets I've ever seen because it's, like, they're cinching the waist, yes, but it, it also feels like they're cinching the rest of the top of their body. Like all of yeah. their garments go up to their chin basically and yeah. down to their wrists. So it just seems like they're being like vacuum sealed at the top half and then they just yeah. have these huge dress bottoms. It's not cute. It's not cute. It can't be comfortable and it's just so restrictive. Like they're simultaneously showing feminine shape while like enforcing this insane level of modesty by covering them literally from chin down. It's not it. It's not cute. Um, okay, so women at this time, they were expected to be very delicate and well-mannered. They basically were owned by their husbands and fathers. Like at this time, there were some loosening of property ownership laws and white women were allowed to, if they were given a piece of property by a man basically or inherited or anything like that, they could manage it and could have their name on the deed. But most of the time, even if a woman were to inherit a piece of property, when she died, it would go straight back to her son or her whatever next of kin who was a man, and it would slip out of her grasp basically immediately. And like I mentioned before, women's colleges were becoming more of a thing at this time, but they basically would educate you to then funnel you directly into a job like a secretary or a switchboard operator, or at the very most, like a nurse but not like the nurses we see now who kind of like run their shit in the hospitals. This is like nurses who were treated like shit by the doctors and were talked down to. They were not taught 
as much of the real medicine as the doctors were. Like, at the very best, you can receive an education to then be put into a workforce that did not give you any sort of responsibility or value with your intelligence. And that's the best case scenario. You haven't said one positive thing since we started. This is, I, I'm glad she kills some of these motherfuckers. They all suck. That's what I'm saying. Like, the more I get myself worked up about this, the more I'm like, maybe Lizzie Borden was a feminist icon because some people call her that. What do you feel about that? I mean, when you're stuck in a box, like when you're caged like an animal, like no one could really predict how you're going to act and you, you're not in your real nature. I mean, you see this a lot with women historically, especially in time periods like this, where they have no options, no options that actually like equate to a real free life. And so it's really hard to pass judgment when like she's being restricted at every single avenue and the people that she's in this cage with aren't even particularly nice to her. Like, fuck them, kill them all. Kill them all. She should have killed them all. Mm -hmm. She spared her sister, so I guess that's cool. So the one piece of interesting history that the more I look into, the more it seems likely is that... Lizzie Borden was a lesbian. Hellyar. But also, like, Onar, because <laughs> what was it like to be a gay woman at this time? Like, I tried to look for, like, history of, um, like, laws and stuff at the time of, like, what was it like if you were exposed as being gay as a woman, what would happen to you? And all the sodomy laws and all the examples of, like, do's and don'ts in society seem to pertain to men having sex with each other. Like, sodomy was obviously illegal at this time, but sodomy pertained to two men having sex. So it's like lesbianism wasn't even really a thing you could be. Like, it wasn't perceived as an option for women. They were not a recognized group, though obviously there were gay women. And there were people who lived in smaller bohemian communities who were able to have a sub like some sort of love life that they were hiding totally from society but yeah it was pretty much inconceivable to be a lesbian at this time and you were probably considered an abomination and maybe even sent off to a mental hospital for some sort of crazy disease that they would assign to you because if you're a lesbian you must be like a freak of nature at this point in history yeah hysteric or something exactly so, you know, she was a lesbian, and we'll get into more of why history thinks she's a lesbian, why I think she's a lesbian, but I don't, it's not a happy ending, y'all. This one doesn't end in a happy ending. Surprise. Yeah, I think if anyone has a basic, like, household knowledge of her, which I didn't have, um, they would know that this is not, it doesn't end up well for her. I'm not setting this up to be a happy ending. I just want everyone to be aware. All right, so let's get into the movie. The film is directed by a man named Craig William McNeil, who honestly, I do not recognize any of his other work. This was his second feature, and it was developed concurrently with Chloe Sevigny, kind of like as a passion project of hers, which I think is interesting. Um, she plays the lead role of Lizzie Borden, and she will take on very intense subjects. Um, the first time I saw her in a film was in Boys Don't Cry, and... She plays um, Brandon's partner in the film and does a really great job. And she's also done some other experimental and really intense drama work. And I think she's great. She does great in this role. Yeah, I, I love Chloe Sevigny. I've had a crush on her for as long as I can remember. I was like a oh, really? Yeah, I was like a pretentious teenager and I was obsessed <laughs> no with... No way. Oh, yeah. Could you not have guessed that I was an <laughs> asshole? Um <laughs> And there's nothing that pretentious teenagers love more than like Harmony Corinne, right? So I saw yeah. her obviously in Kids, which is a huge deal and has been like emulated to hell and back. And then uh, Gummo shortly after that. And then mm -hmm. Boys Don't Cry as well. And then she has this one movie that I know is not good and it's not supposed to be good and everyone hates it. But I watch it quite often called uh, Last Days of Disco. Have you heard of that one? I haven't. It sounds good though. It's like it's about like the last month or so, like the last season where disco was really popular before it kind of got chased out by like all the rock and rollers. And um, it's very nice. It's very shallow. I think uh, what's her name? Kate Beckinsale is in it as well. Mm, okay. It's not supposed to be like a very deep movie, but I, it's one of my favorite of hers. I'm gonna have to check it out. Yeah. I love disco, and disco is not dead. In case anyone was wondering. Yeah. No, it certainly isn't. Not over here. Not with me and Lizzie. No way. Um, 
What did you think about her as Lizzie Borden? I saw the clip that you had sent me. And I always feel the same way about Chloe Sevigny in films where I understand that she's acting and I, I do think that she's, I don't think that she's bad at it, but I think that the allure of Chloe Sevigny is that she's her. And so I, it's hard for me to kind of look past that. Mm. But she tried, like this film is so uncomfortable and she doesn't help make you comfortable in any way. So I think this is like the perfect role for her. Yeah, I think that her helping to like drive the angle of this story, which I really appreciate came from a very queer angle. Um, definitely she was not trying to put anyone at ease. She went like full on in the trauma and abuse that a lot of people think is tied with Lizzie Borden's history. And, you know, let's, let's dive in. Let's talk about it. So the film weaves fictional and speculation and actual details from the murder investigation altogether. So I'll try to do my best to kind of pick out what is actually real and what is speculation for the film. But if anything pops out to you is like, did that actually happen? Let me know because some of the craziest shit in here is actually real. And some of the stuff that makes sense is stuff that's made up. So <laughs> I love that. It's a Spencer moment. Oh, you know, actually, there's a lot of um, moments in this film that reminded me of Spencer. There's one in particular that'll come up towards the end and um, I'll be sure to talk about it. But yeah, this is very much like a Spencer moment in that you're taking the well-known biography of a woman with a troubled past and either choosing to humanize her and give her like kind of a lovely side or just like going balls deep into the darkness of this character. And I think this film does both because there are some very light and beautiful moments with her lover and friend Bridget, the housemaid. And then there's her stabbing her father while totally nude. So there you go. Spoiler, dude. Come on. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> I wonder how many people are going to run to this movie after this. Okay. So. The movie opens on the day of the murder, August 4th, 1892, and we hear Lizzie's voice in the background ring out, Bridget, someone has killed father, go for help. And then we cut to six months prior where we meet our entire cast, uh, Lizzie Borden, who's 32 at the time, played by lovely Chloe Sevigny, her older sister Emma, stepmother Abby, and father Andrew. And we know, oh, go ahead. Please time out because... The last time you told me about this movie, you skated right over the fact that her stepmom is played by Fiona Shaw. Okay. I didn't know. If, I had it in my notes, but I ended up erasing it. Why? I didn't know if it, you even know who Fiona Shaw is. I don't know. I love her. Okay. For the listeners uh, who might not know who Fiona Shaw is, I'm a huge fan. I'm watching Killing Eve right now. So if you're watching Killing Eve, she yes. plays the character of Caroline Martins. Uh, who's bad bitch. Uh, she's also in Harry Potter. She plays Aunt Petunia. Not so cool. But she's also in like a, a lot of queer movies. Like she was mm -hmm. in Ammonite and she played uh, the, the ex-lover. Is she gay? Hold on. Yeah, look that up. Because she's <gasps> – is she gay? Fiona Shaw is gay. <gasps> what does it say? Shaw is openly gay, although she had dated men for many years before realizing her sexual orientation, stating, It was a shock. I was full of self-hatred and thought I would come back into the fold shortly, but I didn't. Whoa. Gay. Fiona Shaw, gay icon. How I totally miss that. <gasps> Amazing. Uh, yes. I'm gonna like killing Eve just gets gayer and gayer as I keep pulling the layers back. <laughs> that show is homoerotic as Fuck. It's so good. So good. And, um, you know, Fiona Shaw is in, like, arguably the most iconic scene of this movie. We'll talk about her death in a little bit, but I have a feeling she read the script and saw how her character got off, and she was like, that. Sign Put me, me up. in that. Sign <laughs> me the fuck up. <laughs> um, okay, so yeah, Fiona Shaw is the evil stepmother. And much like the Dursleys' home, this is not a happy home for Lizzie and her family. Um, in the opening scene, Lizzie's all dressed up, getting ready to go to the theater, like a good little queer girl she is. And her father says he does not want her to go because it would reflect weird on the family. And she's very defiant and rude to him. And they kind of have like this very terse, rude conversation back and forth. Though ultimately, she takes off and goes to the theater on her own. Anyway, at the theater, um, she has a seizure, kind of like a fit. Uh, epileptic fit of some sort and they never really tell us in the film what her condition is 
Um, but she's taken home to the chagrin of her entire family, who's like, well, we told you not to. Also, another point early on the film, we learn that Lizzie and Emma are both unmarried. Emma's in her early 40s, and Lizzie is now 32. So it's pretty much understood that they're already spinsters, even though 32 is not that old to not be married, right? Um, <laughs> asking for a friend. Asking for a friend. That's totally normal, right? Um, <laughs> so their father's estate, his money is going to take care of them forever, basically. And he kind of holds that over them as a way of, like, keeping them in line and controlling them, which is accurate for Victorian women. I see you, Victorian women, and I would give you money. <laughs> so... Lizzie, with her fits, partnered with her defiant attitude. Basically, she overhears her doctor recommending her father to commit her to an institution that can help her. And that's also another thing that Andrew has kind of over her. Like, it almost seems like a ticking time bomb, like an, inevit an, an inevitability in the household that eventually she will be thrown into an institution. Nothing calms me down like the imminent threat of being... <laughs> fucking locked in a cell honestly i've seen girl interrupted it can't be any worse than being locked in this fucking toiletless house yeah it's probably gayer than her current life so absolutely it's gayer than her current life around this time we also meet a frequent visitor to the residence her uncle john who was her late mother's brother and he's in financial confidence with her father fuck this guy fuck this guy Fuck all the guys in this movie, but particularly fuck Uncle John. He's a fucking prick. Um, we learn that the father, that her father Andrew is being blackmailed. Like, he gets these weird little notes that say, like, you're going to die soon. And I know what you did last summer and shit like that. Um, so he thinks he's going to be murdered. And he goes to John to figure out a way to, like, manage his money so that if he gets offed, his kids will have a way to sustain themselves throughout life. And it's basically decided that... Uncle John is going to, like, sign all your money over to me. I'll take care of the girls when you're gone. And you're like, <laughs> fuck you, dude. Um, but there is kind of this threat of death that the real life Andrew was also afraid of. Like, there was multiple points in his life he called the cops to be like, I think I'm being poisoned. Can you, like, check my milk for poisoning? Because poisoning was very hot in the Victorian era. That was, like, the murder of choice, if you will. Because, like, how did forensics work at this point in time? Like, they couldn't really... Like, you could just die and they'd be like, sure. Medicine was not very sophisticated at that time for what we know now. There was no, there was no forensic evidence. There was no DNA. Like, they could do a basic autopsy and figure out and maybe test your blood for any poisons. But they didn't really know what killed anyone at this time. Um, okay, so now that we've gotten all the boring straight men out of the way, in walks Kristen Stewart. Yay! It was almost too many episodes without her. I know. I know you've been missing Kristen Stewart. We've only talked about her <laughs> every film. <laughs> but Kristen Stewart in this film, much like Spencer, rocks a really good European accent. She plays an Irish house servant. Yeah, I heard um, the accent a bit there, and it was actually, like, surprisingly good. It wasn't bad. Kristen Stewart didn't lose herself in this role as much as when I was watching her as Princess Diana, but I think she did great. Great casting. Got me to watch it, for sure. Um, so she plays their recently hired Irish house servant named Bridget Sullivan, and the, the parents insist on calling her Maggie because that was the name of one of their prior maids, even though her name was Bridget. And it's this very, like, classist rude thing where then Lizzie goes to her and, like, is like, what's your actual name? I'm going to call you by your actual name, Bridget. And they kind of form a friendship, which is really sweet because Lizzie has no friends. Her sister's kind of nice to her, but not in a way that's, like, actually substantial. So after one of her episodes, Bridget is very sweet to her. And Lizzie learns that Bridget didn't get to finish school and only barely knows how to read. So starts giving her reading lessons. The only person in cinematic history that's allowed to rename you out of convenience is Miranda Priestly. <laughs> and, uh, and these old dusty bastards in this stinky poop house do not have the right to make you feel bad, Maggie. I mean, yeah. Bridget. Ah, I'm <gasps> sorry. Oh my gosh, you don't respect her at all. Yes. I mean, come on, Fiona Shaw at this point, now that I know she's gay, can call me fucking lizard for all I care. You can call <laughs> me Joey. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> she plays a bitch so well. It's like almost so too easy well. for her. Okay, anyway, now that we have 
two women in the mix that we like. Let's go back to how much the men suck. So um, Andrew begins sexually abusing Bridget pretty immediately. And when Lizzie finds out, she's furious, of course, and disgusted. And the night she finds out, she like puts a bunch of broken glass outside of Bridget's door so that when he comes out, he'll step on the glass and cut up his feet. Um, so already she's got a violent streak. So Lizzie herself is also being abused, not um, by her father, but there is a scene where she finds out that her uncle John is the one sending these like scary little notes, blackmailing her father. And she goes to confront him and he like verbally and physically assaults her until Bridget kind of steps in and is like, hey, like, I see what you're doing. Stop. Is that part true? It was never. Obviously, it was never proved. The courts at the time were not looking to defend people who are victims of sexual assault. That just wasn't something the society was willing to look at directly at the time. So it was, he was never charged for anything like that. But based on how the family acted, I think there is a pretty good chance that Emma and Lizzie were being assaulted by their father. Um, there was a study done in the 80s that looked up cases of parricide, which is when a child kills a guardian or parent. And in many of those cases, um, the children are in a like a long-term abusive relationship, whether it's physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse. And children, particularly from motherless homes like Lizzie's in middle-class, isolated environments, much like Andrew seemed to keep the family, were very susceptible to this pattern, sadly. So, so sadly, I, I do think that if... Lizzie were to have done it, which I'm 99% sure that she did, that this would be the number one reason for her to have done it. I see. Okay, cool. So, Copy. which, hey, calls for murder. Bam. Right there. Fucking kill him. Yeah, it's a very valid reason as well. And you mentioned, like, the uncle being the one responsible for this, like, blackmailing. Is a blackmailing a fabrication for the movie or is that proven to be, like, the case in real life? Her father in real life did believe that he had enemies that would try to kill him, though the situation of the notes and the blackmailing and being connected to her uncle was a fabrication. Okay, cool. But he was definitely a um, paranoid guy and apparently was not well liked. So surprise, surprise, he got <laughs> fucking axe murdered. <laughs> <laughs> right. So going back to the film... Bridget and Lizzie's relationship is kind of bolstered by the fact that they have each other to kind of look out for each other and comfort each other after these really disturbing and traumatizing events. So their friendship grows, as you would say, and their reading lessons turn into like they leave little notes for each other around the house. Like Lizzie will write a little note for Bridget, just like something sweet and nice and leave it on her pillow for Bridget to find when she's like making the bed or like when they pass each other in the stairwell. Bridget will slip her a little note and they have these really, really sweet moments where Bridget's going to like do up Lizzie's dress and there's just like lots of like getting close to each other's skin and sexual tension. And honestly, they have fantastic chemistry and it was really nice to have like this little haven of happiness in what is a very like sad and depressing story in this film. And I thought it was really sweet. Yeah, very Spencer again. Yeah, with like the dressing and the undressing of the buttons yeah, Super. and it's like the only positive part of like a rather dreary, sad experience. Yeah, and it's probably a fabrication for a film. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Sigh. Um, so all of this like love letter writing and smooching in the dressing chambers leads to them having honestly a really bomb sex scene in the barn one afternoon how do they have actual sex on screen they have they have a long sequence of actual good well done and well acted and performed lesbian sex in a movie okay i was watching this movie and i was like wait 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 this is a fantastic lesbian sex scene why have i never seen a frame of this on tumblr twitter tiktok instagram i've never seen a whisper of this movie and that's when i knew i was like the end of this is gonna be awful because no one wants to talk about it. No lesbians were encouraged to see this movie. And I think I'm right. I I don't know if lesbians would want to watch this movie. Maybe just for this one scene. But 
You know, there's some movies that happen like right at the height of Tumblr, which I feel like is a huge like lexicon for gay content. And so like right when Tumblr fell off, you know, before we had things like, you know, people really migrated over to Twitter or like even letterboxed and like started sharing similar content. There's like this weird area where movies like this fell off the face of the planet in like gay culture. And you're right. I I hadn't seen scenes of this. I hadn't seen clips of this. And when you even tried to get me to watch it for this podcast, like we couldn't find it basically anywhere. Like I wonder who the target audience for this film was. Like it didn't seem to be directed at any one particular audience. Like maybe female true crime buffs, maybe. But then they cast someone like Kristen Stewart. And I'm like, they have to know what they're doing with that. And but, Fiona yeah. Shaw, who only and takes Fiona queer Shaw. projects, apparently. <laughs> apparently. <laughs> and maybe it was just a passion project, you know? Maybe this was just, like, a retelling that Chloe and the director really wanted to take with it. But sadly, I think it missed its mark. It doesn't have very good reviews. Like, it has very pretty mediocre reviews across the board. Even though it, it's a well-done movie, it's just not a fun topic. And it's also in this Victorian era where like everything I imagine has to be paced so slowly. There's not like action. Like the whole movie hinges on the final scene where she does actually kill them. And so it's like almost like a trudge to get there. Yeah, absolutely. It is very slow and dry and it's like littered with these very dark, violent scenes that get more and more twisted as time goes on. Like, even this scene, like, they're having this beautiful sex in the barn where Kristen Stewart is topping Chloe Sevigny, and, like, of course, her father walks by and, like, sees them having sex, and they're, like, one moment of ecstasy that you're like, yes, gets, like, totally destroyed. Like, even the murder is not even that much of a payoff, which we'll talk about. I mean, for me, it wasn't much of a payoff. Me either. So... Her dad catches them, tells Lizzie that he's going to fire Bridget immediately, and he calls her an abomination. Of course. We love it. Her, like, having beautiful, lovely make-out sex with a woman is an abomination. He doesn't want to see her having or receiving pleasure at all. Was that on your subtextual bingo card? (laughs) Yeah, it's, like, right in the middle. It's, like, free space. Honestly, this could be queer bingo. There's a Kristen Stewart scene. Mm -hmm. There's, like, lots of gazing. There's little love notes. Blackmail. Murder. Murder. Mm -hmm. Blood. Blood. (laughs) So Bridget and Lizzie realize that they're about to be separated forever. And so they have this, like, really dark, hush conversation where Lizzie asks Bridget probably the sketchiest question you can possibly ask someone that you actually love, and that's, do you trust me? Anytime anytime someone has to ask you, do you trust me? You're like, you're like, that's not fair. Cause I could say yes and still not do what you want to do next. I hate that question. That is that is an infuriating question. It's like, I don't want to try that stew you just made. Like, I trust you. Uh, don't make me do something I don't want to do. I don't want to get on the magic carpet, Aladdin. Exactly. I don't want to go skydiving. I don't. Like, you can ask someone if they want to partake in something. They can choose yes or no. But to do it on this basis of trust just makes it seem like it's going to be really bad. Yeah. It's a little manipulative, huh? Yeah, extremely. I wish this would have been the moment rather than them kind of like making this hushed kind of secretive weird plan that Lizzie seems to be the one that wants to pull it off, that this was more of like a lover's revenge kind of thing like that's the movie i wanted to see um mm-hmm. but my my dream of what this movie should be unravels pretty quickly and everyone's left pretty empty-handed at the end okay so we are at the murder Ooh. it is august 4th 1982 it's a hot as fuck day in real life and in the movie August is hot. It was like a heat wave. They're wearing these like constricting ass dresses. I would murder a bitch if it was that hot outside and I had to wear fucking six layers of cotton in a corset. Mm -hmm. Another take on I'll kill for fashion. (laughs) That's not in my notes. I just made that up. Oh, I love that. Yeah. No, I mean, if I was stuffed into a sausage casing, I would be fucking pissed. (laughs) It's like a cotton body condom. It's like the worst. Okay, so 
<clears throat> the morning of the murders. So the next morning, Andrew leaves for a walk and Lizzie has Bridget deliver Abby a fake note at exactly nine o'clock on the dots, um, telling Abby that a friend has fallen ill. So Abby rushes off to go change her clothes in the guest bedroom and the camera pans over to reveal Lizzie totally naked, 100% naked, tits, full frontal, and she jumps out at Abby and, like, throws her to the ground and smashes her in the face with an axe like a crazy person, like, blood hitting her, blood all over her tits. Like, it's a lot. And it's a lot. Okay, so you made me watch this scene as homework, so if it sounds like I've seen the movie, I haven't. I've just seen this scene. But holy shit, was this so uncomfy? Like, they – it's so strange. So, like, they follow Fiona Shaw into the room, and she's, like, getting undressed, and they, like, do this really slow pan, like you said, but it's, like, there's no sound in the scene. Like, it's so fucking – like, how do you walk into a room? She would have been in your eye line, but whatever. I'm not trying to kill the magic. But they pan over to show Chloe Sevigny – who looks like an absolute freakazoid with her titties out. And, oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's so... What is the emotion that she completes this act, do you think? Because I had a hard time pinpointing it. It almost looks like a dissociation. Like, she's kind of checked out, but she has this kind of an aggressive demeanor that's kind of like right under the surface it's not it doesn't seem like a passionate act per se but the thing that I found interesting about this scene is that when Chloe Sevigny like crosses the room obviously her steps make noise and Fiona Shaw the stepmother turns around instead of being like oh my god Lizzie why are you naked or like oh my god Lizzie why do you have a hatchet like she (laughs) she she looks at her and goes oh no like she just says oh no like she almost could see it coming She's not surprised. She's like, I've been waiting for this. If anyone in my household, even if they didn't like me, if we weren't friends, if I walked into a room and they were naked with a hatchet, I'd be like, Doug, what's up? Like, I wouldn't be like, ah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, like, once they get close to me and start hitting me, yes, of course. But, like, it it seemed like a very specific choice to take as though, like, hmm. her stepmother was somewhat could have assumed that this would have happened. You're right. They could have taken this scene in so many different directions. And also, the choice for her to be nude was very specific. Like, this stands out to me. This is that iconic scene I was talking about. Like, why would she have been naked for this act? This is just a hunch, and I can't confirm this. Um, But Chloe Sevigny has always been a very open performer. She's always been, like, willing and... Uh, open to taking these risks she was in this film called the brown bunny and if Mm. i'm not mistaken uh there's a scene where she gives the main character the protagonist a Mm blowjob and if i remember correctly she gives the care she gives the actor an actual blowjob like just just talking me and you like i appreciate that she doesn't shy away from these kinds of themes but do you think that, like, adding that layer of shock, like, brings something more to the performance? Like, because you can simulate fellatio without actually giving a blowjob. Like, you can even film this scene of Lizzie axe murdering her stepmother naked in a different way. Like, this iconic scene, I'm never going to forget this scene. And it honestly tortured me to watch it but brought me to a lot of realizations about the character like as time went on like I couldn't get the scene out of my head but like bringing that level of intensity to these stories is obviously a choice that she makes as a performer like what do you think bringing that extremity to it could mean for her I think as like a a person that's always been like regarded for how edgy that she can be and she pushes the limits and the frontiers of like fashion. She's known as like a fashion icon. I think that there's probably a desire and like an understanding of how iconic going all the way can be. I mean, like just for as an example, like divine pink flamingos, John Waters, like divine Mm -hmm. eats dog shit. She eats actual dog shit off of the sidewalk. It's not like chocolate. It is dog shit. And that was the cultural reset. I feel like people use that word Mm -hmm. quite often, but like that really was like 
that is a significant moment for John Waters and for Divine. So I think that when she's at these points where she can make the decision to go the easier route, I think she just doubles down. And while this movie is not like a home run in any case, I think that the commitment to this scene made me so uncomfortable. Like I kind of had to like take a beat. It really makes you consider the act more. We see murder scenes and the equivalent to this kind of violence in basically every movie and TV show possible these days. So adding this extra layer of shock to it kind of like brings you back to the desperation and the hurt and the anger behind this act, which I think you would have to have all of that pins up inside of you to go through these motions, you know, and she definitely brings that in this character. So Chloe Sevigny said in an interview that it helped drive home the idea that the murders were utterly depraved, but they helped to liberate Lizzie and also a way for her to shred the corsets that represent all these social restraints and her just going carnal. Yeah, that's a good point. Like you're, when you kill another person, that's like the most animal you can be, right? Yeah. And also you're being fucking squeezed through a tube every day of your goddamn life and it's 100 degrees outside like if you're gonna do it like fucking commit yeah it's also like she chose a very phallic i don't know people are always like oh murder is so phallic but like watching this scene and how it plays down it definitely feels like this axe is so invasive and it's like slicing into this woman and She's kind of like taking the energy that was always pointed at her by her Uncle John, by her father, by society, and like driving that into the image of what is holding her back from having a free life. So she's kind of like taking on a very masculine energy as she's performing this act. And like how much more phallic than a fucking bloody axe? Yeah, no, that's pretty fucking phallic. Anyway, okay. Great scene. Never want to watch it again. Nope. Moving on. So Lizzie cleans up, puts her clothes back on, and about an hour later, her father gets home and he sits on the couch in the living room and reads a newspaper. And now it's time for Bridget, Kristen Stewart's turn, to strip down naked and she goes to murder him in the same way. But as she goes to commit the act and raise the axe, she's like totally frozen. She she kind of loses it, starts having what looks like a panic anxiety attack but also kind of looks like that scene from twilight 4 where she's giving uh like a weird cesarean birth to renesme like the two were so uncanny to me um so lizzie walks in wait stop hold on sometimes you say the most ridiculous things and then you just like keep moving (laughs) i twilight 4 you know what I mean. We all know which one it is. What am I going to say? Twilight's Breaking Dawn Part 1. Like, Yeah. I mean, I had to do the math. I went like, Twilight, New Moon, Eclipse. Goblet of Fire, like, oh. Prisoner of Azkaban. Wait. Yeah. Part 1, Part 2. I'm like, what the f- I'm doing the math over here. I've never heard anyone else call it break- Twilight 1, 2, 3, or 4, or 5. <laughs> anyway, another iconic and really disturbing scene. Um, but she's kind of doing her like Kristen Stewart thing that I forgot she did while watching Spencer, but it's kind of like the, I, I like just glitch out and it honestly fits for what the scene calls for, for once. So good job, Case Stu. So Case Stu is not able to commit the act. So Lizzie does it her damn self. She takes the axe, bludgeons the shit out of her father And then she burns her dress, burns the hatchet handle, cleans the axe, and in a really weird act that I actually had to watch more than once to make sure I saw correctly, like, beheads a pigeon with the axe she just used to murder her father. Which I was like, why? Why would you clean a bloody axe to then put blood back on it? I guess if there's a... If there's a chance that there's blood found anywhere or anything related to the axe, you could just say, like, I was... Killing a bird, which doesn't sound more realistic, but it is less bad than killing a person. I guess. It does come up in the trial, but, like, it felt more thematic than than realistic to me. You know what I mean? And then yeah. it kind of feels like the birds symbolize, like, feminine innocence and 
these weaknesses that are perceived by society, whether they're there or not. Like in Spencer, where Diana feels something like understanding for these like beautifully colorful birds that won't stand a chance in the pheasant hunt, Lizzie kind of sees, I think, her own powerlessness in these pigeons. And then killing that bird is a way to be like, this isn't who I am. This isn't the image of me. I'm, I'm the axe. I'm not the bird. And they're caged. Mm. Right? So like... Because men have been able to put these birds in cages, they can feel somewhat powerful over them. But like at the end of the day, birds can fly and do these amazing things that we can't imagine. So it's like a control over a beautiful thing um, that could kind of symbolize like her whole life. Yeah. So after she's done away with all the bloody evidence, she we see the scene from the very beginning where she puts on a show and screams, Bridget, someone has killed father. Go for help. But this time we get to see Bridget's reaction to the whole situation. And she has this like look of just utter disgust on her face. All the love and respect she had for Lizzie and maybe for herself seems to be gone. And she's obviously sickened by what they've done. So the police show up. They eventually do arrest Lizzie, though not right away. And at the trial, Bridget gives an alibi saying that she saw Lizzie outside under the pear tree and I I see her then as I see her now. So that combined with just the lack of evidence the police are able to gather against Lizzie um, means that she's acquitted. And in the final scene, Bridget visits her in prison to tell her that she never wants to speak or see her ever again. And Bridget mounts a train to Montana. And the movie's over in like the saddest possible ending that actually does reflect what happened in real life pretty, pretty spot on. Bridget did move to Montana and later in life on her deathbed, she admitted to an old friend that she had liked Lizzie and often took her side during troubles occurring in the Borden household. She said that she helped Lizzie out at the trial and that she had been less than candid with the police, basically insinuating that she knew more than she let on, but intentionally left things out to protect Lizzie when, when push come to shove. Damn, ride or die. I mean, it's probably like the single most ridiculous and harrowing thing, like trauma bonding what, like that you could possibly do yeah. with a person. And I, I think for me, if I was Bridget walking away from that, I'd be like, was she even trying to help me? Like, it doesn't seem like she was. It seems like she was, she was processing her own shit and I was just around and it kind of added momentum to this whole thing. Yeah. But I think if you get distance from it for like – you know, fucking go to Montana for a few weeks and you're like, holy shit, that sucked. I never want to see her again. And I want to forget it ever happened. Yeah, I think this is where they could have taken this, uh, the ending of this into more of like a lover's revenge storyline that I really, really would have liked. And they even could have ended it with the realistic ending of what happened in real life with Bridget going to Montana and them never seeing each other again and it being this like weird unrequited thing that they did together but you know i'm just projecting my wishes onto this work and don't we always don't we always <laughs> um it could have been more gay than it was but to be honest it was as gay as it could be it was a surprising amount of gay i mean full-on sex like full on yeah so sam do you think that lizzie committed this crime I think that there's a reality in which she could have hired someone to kill her mm. dad because I mm -hmm. we talked about this before, but like the way that the inheritance would have gone chain-wise, like her stepmother has to be killed first. Right. So that they are in like the sole heirs of this fortune and they couldn't find any of her clothing, anything like that with anything on it. So it feels it feels more like she got someone to come in, do the deed, and they left very quickly, and then she, her hands were totally clean. Yeah. I think that's very real, realistic. She could have given them enough details about the house to maneuver and wait because the thing that is just so weird to me is the fact that her mother was killed – or Abby was killed at 9 and her father wasn't killed till 11.30. So there is t over two hours between these two murders, like – Someone would either have to leave and come back or be hidden somewhere in the house. But Lizzie claimed she didn't see anyone. Bridget claimed she didn't see anyone. But also, like, what the fuck? Forensics isn't a thing. Like, what's two hours? They can guess that there was a two-hour difference between one body 
being slightly warmer than another body, but it's like back in the day day, like they didn't even have run in toilets. Like they can't tell. I think it was clear that one was killed. Like how? Because when the police showed up, Abby's body was no longer bleeding and was cold and her father's was still emitting blood and was warm. So you're like, huh, time hath passed. Also, rigor mortis. Don't make me say rigor mortis again. It was rigor mortis, girl. It was rigor the mortis. Rigor rigor morty would be a really good um, drag name. (laughs) Yes or no? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. No, I mean (laughs) – so I'm not a scientist. I don't understand half of the shit that they can do now, but they didn't even have cars back then. Like, I don't think they could say two hours. That's like very much a guess. I, I, I believe in the science of the time, but. So in kind of reading about what people actually think happened in these murders, it's not so much as who did it. Everyone seems to unanimously agree that it was Lizzie, but it's the why she did it that is the most interesting and contentious part of all of this. It's ranged from this is an act of love and an act of freedom that makes her a feminist icon to she was like a revengeful, greedy slut, and this was like a a crime of hatred. So we have a whole spectrum, and then all in between, like maybe she was doing it out of self-defense. So, But there's many factors across all of these reasons that really stuck out to me, so I wanted to talk real quickly about three things lizzie's class her gender and her sexual orientation because i think the intersection of these three things pop out the most to me and what i've read and in my own feelings about what happened with lizzie so the easiest thing to consider and why she would have murdered her family is something we've already talked about but it's for money the sisters were not married they relied solely on their father's income which he doled out very stingily and the fact that it was pretty clear that Abby died before Andrew meant that rather than Andrew's inheritance going to Abby's family line, Lizzie and Emma would inherit everything. And within two months of the murders, Emma and Lizzie had sold their house and moved to the neighborhood on top of the hill, basically to the very richest street in the very richest neighborhood that they had access to. Within two months, like, I mean, granted, I would want to be out of the house my parents were murdered in, but... I would leave the fucking city. Like, you're yeah. not, you don't have a job there. You don't go to school you there. You don't have friends. People there, people there probably don't want to hang out with you anymore. No, sh- like, I don't understand why they didn't just leave. I don't know either. I have no clue. I mean, maybe they had family. Who knows for the time. But because they were definitely just, like, kind of outcasts for the rest of their lives. Like, no, Lizzie never really recovered from this in her own town. Like, she made friends outside of Falls River, but no one in Falls River wanted to talk to her. She was like the crazy lady in the haunted house that the kids would go like ding dong ditch. So, and there was also one other thing that kind of pointed to me that this could have been a crime relating to her class and wealth standards, but Lizzie was a kleptomaniac. She stole from the family. She stole jewels and pawned them. This is something that's in the film, but also that seemed to have happened in real life. She stole from stores. She was caught shoplifting, like... To me, I'm like, yeah, of course she was stealing. She had no other way to make her own money unless her father gave it to her. So I think her need for financial independence kind of came out in this very Winona Ryder way. Yeah, it seems like it plays into my theory as well. Like she could have been pocketing some of this or like cheeking some of this money weekly and she could have paid somebody. I mean, it seems like they're in a town where there's a lot of people kind of in and out of it Mm -hmm. and- she probably could have paid somebody an amount before and she got the money after she could have paid them more then as well. So like it does line up with that instinct to kind of take things or hide things because you don't have any security and where the money's coming from. You know, I really like this theory that we're developing because it could be like this very like sexy bad girl that she meets who's like a street walker or whatever. And she's like, look, this is my house. I'll tell you all the ins and outs. If you can uh, ensure that Abby dies first, I'll make you a wealthy woman. I think we should. Yeah. I think we should write a movie. That's fa- It's giving me monster vibes. It is. Oh, which we should definitely do for this podcast. Holy shit. God. I, that movie changed me for better God, or for worse. I love that worse. movie. And also her class is what predominantly what kept her from being convicted. Like 
the jury at the time could not conceive that a rich white woman would ever be able to pull off such a masculine thing as murder. I mean, you said earlier in the episode, like, they couldn't even think of a word for lesbianism. Like, they can't even imagine that a woman could be gay. They can't imagine a woman's a murderer. Absolutely not. No, it would never cross their minds. And then they would be admitting to themselves that, like, their own family, their own daughters and wives could be murderers as well. Mm-hmm. Which maybe they are. I hope so. Kill them all. Kill them all. And then this, this is a perfect segue into how her gender... And we kind of talked about this already. Like, she was in this such constricting lifestyle. She literally could do nothing but sit around all day and sew or write letters or, like, embroider. Like, she could do nothing. The most excitement she had in her life was teaching Sunday school. She was fucking bored. She was so entrenched in the patriarchal lifestyle that doesn't make her a feminist icon that she literally stabbed the patriarchy to death, took his money, and then lived her own life with it? Maybe it does. I don't feel very empowered by this story personally, but there are many, many, many people on the internet, particularly women, who find empowerment in this story that she took shit into her own hands. Yeah, it reminds me of like Lorena Bobbitt, right? How like it's such a divisive crime, you know, like women who have been abused often are like, absolutely, it's justified. She should have done that, you know? And then there's on the other side of it, it's men who are like terrified. Like, am I just going to be castrated in my sleep? And so it's, it makes sense that the jury wouldn't want to like accept for a moment that a woman is capable of this because then they would have to question like, can I do something to, to a woman that I love that will make her do this to me? The answer is yes. Yes. The answer is yes. And they should. It's like, it's like you put out violence in the world and you'll receive violence back. Mm -hmm. And if she was being mistreated or abused by her father, fuck him. I'm glad he's in the grave. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, that's no excuse. And her life honestly didn't get too much better after all of this because the societal pressures were still there. She still didn't make too many friends and whatever. She was rich and free. So there you go. Mm -hmm. And then... The main question that we're interested in here is Lizzie Borden's sexual orientation. So to be very honest, I've said this before and I'll say it again. If you were rumored to be a lesbian in the 1800s, you probably fucking were. You know what I mean? Like if that rumor has been pervasive throughout a society that barely had a word for women who had sex with women, use a lesbian. Yeah. Like it seems like from what I understand of this trial – there's no tangible evidence for any of this stuff like, oh, I saw someone washing the windows maybe at maybe nine, maybe could have been 10, but maybe they weren't washing the windows. Maybe that was somebody else. Yeah. Like all of these maybes and details that slip through the cracks and can't be validated. Like if what people take away from her from like hundreds of years later was that like she was gay as shit, like it's she was probably gay. Like She was probably gay. Yeah. Well, Eleanor Roosevelt had, like, a partner that she wrote to where they wrote, like, the gayest shit to each other, Frida Kahlo, like, all these people who have, like, actual tangible letters where they're like, I love you, I want to fuck you. Historians are still like, they were not gay. Emily Dickinson. But if everyone's – Yeah. Emily Dickinson. (laughs) Like, if everybody's on page – on the same page that Lizzie Borden is gay, like, I'll take it. Proof enough for me. Though I I was able to recover, like – one particular relationship that seemed pretty much evidence but um after her father's death lizzie traveled pretty often to boston and new york and started making friends with these like bohemian types which was code for like sexually free um so a few years after the murder she was in a very tight intimate friendship with a film actress named nance o'neill who i kind of want to show you a picture of Ooh, this is the best photo yet Oh my god. Actually, I zoomed in. She looks hella scary. Um <laughs> it's not the it's not the same vibes as the other two photos which like look haunted because they're old. Like this bitch looks like mad scary. Um okay, sorry. I'm not painting a very good picture. Uh it's a woman <laughs> with uh hair that's like messy, very sloppy, not in the fashion of like the other women. And you can see her shoulders and her chest and her arms, which is like she's basically naked in comparison to the other photos. And she's staring at you from, like, 
behind these like brooding eyebrows and she's kind of got this expression like you couldn't possibly do anything to impress this woman. It's almost like you would have to be a murdering axe lesbian to get her attention. Yeah, almost something <laughs> like that. So like it was they were very clearly in what I would consider a relationship like Lizzie once her father died was wealthy as fuck. So she was able to give this woman money and support her. Nance even moved in with Lizzie and Emma in their fancy hilltop house for a short while, which not long after this, after Lizzie threw this like big elaborate gay party for Nance at the house, Emma got super pissed, moved out and never talked to Lizzie again for the rest of their lives. So gay party, gay party. Hey, look, I was going to throw a gay party and then my family never talked to me again. You better make it good. Yeah, I imagine it was like a Victorian Project X. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, yeah. And then, you know, the not fun side of being a lesbian at this time is that she was probably encouraged to marry a man. And maybe her indication of not being married is her fighting back against that. I mean, maybe her dad was just controlling and didn't want her to marry, but... It kind of feels like he would want to unload them to save more money for himself. And if they family did have any inkling of her being gay, they would have put an even tighter control on her time and who she spent her time with and how she spent her money, you know, which would lead to a lot of the anxiety she obviously felt and the kleptomaniac tendencies she had. So I think she was a very unhappy queer woman who became a less unhappy queer rich woman after she axe murdered her family. And that's what I think. What do you think? Yeah. You think she was gay? Yeah, she was gay. Great. There's not like a question in my my mind anywhere. Like this is a gay person. This is a gay person. And like no matter what, how, why she did it, it all comes down to repression and lack of control. She took matters into her own hands regardless of what circumstances brought her there. So yeah, baby. Lizzie Borden, like very sad feminist icon, but a feminist icon nonetheless. Um, so let's score this movie. Dun, 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 let's dun. do it. Let's put this movie behind us. Um, so on a scale of one to ten, what would you give this film? I would give it a three and a half. Three and a half. Yeah, it's it's something I've seen scenes of, but I probably won't even go and watch one time all the way through yeah god i think i give it a four and a half because it is a well done movie but i'm never i'm gonna be very clear i'm never gonna watch this movie again for as long as i live <laughs> that's all right <laughs> all right so how gay is this film 10 10 gay sex 10 big old gay sex okay so let me do the math okay so plus 10 oh my god this movie might be so gay that it comes back for it it's a seven. A seven. Wow. Other movies, She's the Man got a seven. Yeah. And I gave She's the Man like basically a 10. Yeah. Wow. You know, this goes to show kids, throw some gay sex in your movie. It really ups the score. It really ups the score. It will encourage people to see it. I, I have one last question for you. If you were to kill someone, what would be your like preferred method? Poison. <laughs> it's very hip, you know. This episode was produced by Lee Garcia. Your hosts are Lizzie Guitro and Sam De La Fuente. Editing by Lizzie. Music by DJ No. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd at SubtextualPod. 